That's what medical education should be based on, not on the social context or aspects of health or medicine, just on the basic and clinical sciences and the research. That was what's valued. That's where the power is. That's where the money is. And so because there was so much voice in that space and so much power, the narrative of health is really off in this country. It's getting better, but it's off. It's a constant evolution and a constant push. And one of the reasons why we did the narrative guide in partnership with um, the Association of American Medical Colleges to help support people understanding that these words and these, these terms matter and the stories and the, the narratives that they tell matter as well. And we have to be very conscious of that as we practice medicine and do medicine and health. Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host, Kapama Yopala, and I go by KP. I'm the co-founder and CEO of In On Health. In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Alifa Maybank. Alifa currently serves as the Chief Health Equity Officer and Senior Vice President for the American Medical Association. In her current role, she focuses on embedding health equity across all the work of the American Medical Association. Prior to this role, Alifa served as the founding deputy commissioner for the Center of Health Equity at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. She was also the founding director at the Office of Minority Health in the Suffolk County Department of Health Services. She is a health expert appearing on national and global media outlets such as NPR, MSNBC, News One, and the Journal of the American Medical Association. Dr. Maybank holds a bachelor's degree from Johns Hopkins University, a doctor of science from Temple University School of Medicine, and a master of public health from Columbia. In this episode, we discuss Alifa's personal background at the intersection of health equity, clinical medicine, and public health. We discuss her background leading systemic change locally and nationally. I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation as much as I did. On today's episode of the In On Health podcast, I have the great pleasure of having with us today, Dr. Alifa Maybank. She's my good friend and a social justice and health equity leader that's been doing so much work across the country and over her career span, actually, in this kind of health equity space. So, so pleased to have you with us today. Awesome to be here, KP. Good to be in community with you. Likewise. Before we dig into your role at the American Medical Association, I really want people to understand more about your career path. You've done a lot of different things in the public health and clinical space, both um, in the public sector and private sector. And I think that arc of your career, I don't think we hear as much um, in the industry and what led you to the space. So can we start by just hearing a bit about your background and what led you into clinical medicine and public health? Sure. Thanks, KP. So my interest in being a doctor, I guess I'll go way back. So it started, you know, when I was four years old, actually. And ever since uh, then, I always wanted to be a physician. The story goes, my mother gave me a, a Fisher Price doctor kit. And ever since then, I wanted to be a physician. And so that never, I never wow. wavered from that. Yeah. Wow. It was either that or, or a dancer. I also grew up doing all types of dance. So I, I went the, the medical route. And, you know, I went, you know, to Hopkins undergrad and then went to Temple for med school. I always wanted to stay in kind of the urban areas initially and then ended up um, in New York for my residencies. And it was really, you know, in the time of my residencies that I started to get a sense of 
what it would look like possibly if I'm practicing medicine, what the system I'd be working in. And I started to get feelings um, of I'm not sure I would like working in uh, a hospital or doctor's office day in and day out. And part of it had to do with, and I think the larger part of it had to do with one, just I, I really had a sense of this, the span and the spectrum of like what all that life brings and understanding that, you know, we aren't kind of one dimensional people and, and our patients aren't one dimensional patients. And that it was really important to understand, you know, what was happening in the patient's lives, you know, as they came in front of us. But the medical culture and system didn't allow for that. You know, it's like they came in that moment. It was like the very present of whatever they were experiencing and not even the context of all these different things that we know are important to health. And, and a lot of folks are understanding now are very important to health. Right. And so in understanding and, and seeing that gap, it was very frustrating to me, actually. You know, I didn't like hearing, you know, the social workers should take care of that or, mm-hmm. you know, that I don't have to worry about that. It just didn't make sense, you know, as a physician. And so I did practice for two years as a hospitalist um, here in New York in, a, in the NICU. And I love kids and I love, I love people, but I just, the system, I just, it didn't, it didn't jive with me well, per se. Mm-hmm. And so I remembered my roots that I was at Hopkins. Um, my major was actually natural sciences, public health. And at that time, they didn't have public health majors. So you had to go, you, got, you had the opportunity to go to actual public health school. So at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Public Health, I was able to take courses as part of my major. And I just, I remember the feeling, though, of, of taking those courses. And I took one, it was called at that time, American Indian Health. And I was just like, wow, you know, I'm just learning. It just, it was just so fascinating to me. And it, and it really, you know, sat well. And I remembered that. So I, I applied to public health school here at Columbia in the city. Uh, you know, I had this fortunate opportunity that, that came up. I'd never heard of the residency before. It was a preventive medicine residency and public health. And there happened to be a vacancy that was here in one of the schools in, in New York. And then when I learned they paid for the public health degree at um, Columbia, I was like, this is a win-win situation. Right. You know, this is awesome. So I did a second residency in preventive medicine, public health. And it's, it was exactly where I wanted to be. You know, the prevention aspect of it. And what... I think is actually very characteristic of preventive medicine specialists is that they do have a sense of kind of flexibility of where you can be as a physician. um, And you have the opportunity to do your practicum work in many different places. Some people went to pharma companies, some people went to media, actually. Some folks went to quality improvement organizations. Some folks went into the clinical settings. I did a lot of my practicums actually in public health departments. Okay. Um, And that's how I started to get like, you know, into that space. Um, And at that time, um, the context of health disparities, cultural competency, you know, I don't use those terms much anymore. Mm -hmm. But at that time, they were starting to emerge because the the IOM, the Institute of Medicine report came out and really significantly, I think, impacted many of us in how we understood bias in our healthcare system that existed amongst providers. And that influenced, I think, a whole stream of work. And then at the federal level, the Office of Minority Health at that level had already been established and they started to really elevate and resources were starting to put, be put into at the federal level of addressing these things called disparities. And I was one of the first persons within the area I was starting to teach immense students about what that was 
um, what cultural capitalism was. Yeah. That's fascinating. So this gives a really good backdrop for some of the roles that you then had later in your career, but I didn't realize that that movement toward preventive medicine, it started very early for you in your kind of training arc. And as you were looking at the field. So tell me more about, you also have a background in media, right? As well, which I feel like is interesting in the intersection of media and public health. And can you talk a little bit about some of that in your, in your career trajectory? Sure. I mean, so the thing with public health, so, you know, as I finished the residency, actually during the residency, I got asked um, by a commissioner in a health department to start an office of minority health. And I was still in residency, but I had a great program director who said, well, this is a unique opportunity. Uh, we'll figure out how to do both. So I fi finished up residency at the same time of starting an office of minority health. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I, you know, I've always been kind of entrepreneurial ever since then. I guess I've always been that way, but that has been kind of, I think the, the foundations of the work that I've done in, in the space of, of um, public health and equity in healthcare. Naturally, when you're in government, because it's political and you are engaging with community and you need to be able to share and communicate what's happening, media is going to want to potentially talk to you about what's, what's going on, you know, what happened when there was this breakout or that breakout. And again, there was lots of attention that was starting to build uh, as, as it relates to not in the way that it has been in this time of COVID. COVID just kind of really exploded the attention as it relates to inequities. But there was, there was, there, it was kind of rumbling. And so that's how I, I got into media. And then I'm in New York City, too. So it's, the, you know, it's really the, the kind of the news media capital, really, of, of the world, I guess. And you become really accessible. I was younger. You know, I think I had a particular look. I was of color. Um, and I think that also became, that was, there was an attractiveness to that as well. And I feel I communicate pretty well. So that was just all of that mixed together um, became really attractive. And so, you know, I noticed that I started to get, um, in, in addition to like local news media and, and because I was the director or founding director, deputy commissioner of these roles, um, I started to get that attention. But then it, because New York City is not only like a local city, it does have kind of national, international reach. Mm -hmm. I was starting to get other, you know, reach outs. And there was a Doc McStuffins uh, launch from Disney Junior. And there was a doc in um, Texas, Maisha Taylor, you know, who ended up reaching out to many docs across the country. She organized us and had us send pictures into Disney. And Disney was like, wow, you know, because we we're thanking them for these images. And then that started the We Are Doc McStuffins kind of movement. And, you know, I, that's my, one of my claims of fame is being in a commercial and talking, you know, with Doc McStuffins, a cartoon character. Amazing. <laughs> right? Yeah, because I hear from a lot of my medical friends now who are clinicians, particularly women and women of color, like Doc McStuffins for them was, was one of the first times on TV they saw someone that, you know, was a person of color and clinical right and i think for young people at that time that actually influenced a generation of clinicians now like particularly women of color clinicians i yeah i believe that's absolutely right and i think they did some data and some studies actually on that and the impact of doc but i think there probably needs to be a lot more in terms of just the the you know we, there's so much conversation around increasing diversity in medicine and in healthcare and You'll hear the phrase, um, you know, you can't see, you, you can't be what you don't see. And I think there's some, there's a lot of truth to that. I don't think it's full truth, right. but I do think there's a lot of truth to that. 
and these impact the impacts of images on TV and media and any I mean any type type of medium I think is really important for the young mind because they they really absorb it you know at that age um, and we need to study that more. The other part that I think is really important that I always feel that as a field of public health, especially medicine, maybe more so, is that we undervalue actually the power of communications and media. Right. I think COVID is a time where we have definitely seen, thank goodness, an explosion of physicians and other healthcare workers in media, on news, as trusted resources. But I think we all need to have a sense and a context to that. I think that is, should be part of, you know, med school training um, and resident training of how do you you know, engage with your local media. It doesn't have to be national, right? But it right. could be writing. And we do writing for peer-reviewed journals, but that's in like a, you know, that's kind of, it can be in a vacuum, you know, and that's important, but that's not sufficient enough when we're thinking about caring for a population from my perspective. And I think we have, we're a credible voice and people typically trust us. That's the privilege that we have as physicians. And so why not use it? To, to create change. And so I, I had a, col- a column on ebony.com for a while and then also wrote for the HuffPost. And then for a year, I was a, actually a medical contributor on Arise News, which is an international news station rooted from the continent. Yeah, no, that's fascinating because I think now more than ever, this whole construct of public health communications is much more, I think, discussed because of the pandemic and so many of the challenges of public health communication in that context. And you hear now a lot of public health schools talking about the need for just what you're saying, like even putting even more of an emphasis on training our public health leaders that are coming out on this element of the intersectionality of public health and communications and local is where it's really at, right? Like, which I think we've also learned that particularly in the pandemic a lot more than I think people appreciated. And I think it's also at the intersection comes becomes really important when you think of politics. So I'm now seeing, so Daniel Dawes wrote Political Determinants of Health. I just saw another book. I'm not going to remember the title today. Also all about politics and health, something like that. Mm-hmm. But there's this clear understanding that you, to not as a physician, especially and folks within the healthcare system who have power within the system to not acknowledge explicitly the political impacts and determinants and drivers of health and how it shows up. Is, is a complete to be mistaken void. And we've, we've had that kind of happen for many, many years, right? And I think your ability to be able to communicate is really important because you have to be able to talk and speak and engage and learn in terms of these political environments um, and interact with people in a way that's just not typically how you interact in like a healthcare setting. Um, I think the ability to really know how to be relational it's, it becomes very important at the intersection of comms, advocacy, politics, policy. Exactly. And now also, if I, if I think about public health communications and how I was trained some years ago, like similar timing to you and now, I think what's also missing is the digital component. I think a lot of traditional paradigms in public health communications are quite antiquated. They're about billboards and radio campaigns and things that are very old school. And I think public health is only now really starting to grapple with all these channels of communication that are available to people and basically the noise that's possible in the public health comm space. It's never been that way before historically, this intersection of social media and all these comms channels in public health. So look, that, that gives a really great backdrop to some of the things that I wanted us to talk about today, because 
you know, in terms of systemic change, um, you've had several roles in which you have been a leader in forming centers of health equity, working with people that may have different levels of understanding of the topic and mobilizing people around the issue. So, you know, with your role now at the AMA, it's not by accident that you're there, like you've been doing this for some time. So let's talk first about your, you know, role as associate commissioner and then later deputy commissioner at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Um, you launched the Center for Health Equity there. Um, maybe you could talk about that experience and some of your milestones or accomplishments as a bridge into now your AMA role. Sure. And I'll, I'll take it one step back to the founding director of the Office of Minority Health, because okay. every single role I've had, you know, of, of this kind of startup in an institution I've learned and build from, you know, built from. And so what I learned in that role, um, because it was a, it was a political role. So it was, I won't, whomever the county executive was, I won't say the name, but it was like that exact county executive's Office of Minority Health. Right. And that speaks to something. Right. So it, it it, that's where I really learned kind of a lot of the political environment. I grew up in it because my mom was in politics and, and adjacent to it. But mm. now actually kind of being in it at that point in time helped me again kind of learn strategic thinking that would support getting what I wanted and needed, as well as support understanding what the communities that were being served needed and how I was going to communicate and engage with them. And I ultimately really learned, especially in that environment, the power of the folks who are actually outside of the institution to offer stability for the work that I was leading for long term. And so that Office of Minority Health still exists is because I really focused on building up the relationships with the constituencies in the neighborhoods and the communities that we were serving, the leaders and all of that. And in a genuine way, not in, a, in an inauthentic way. Right. Um, and really listening and being responsive to people is really critical in these roles from a leadership perspective. And which means I had to be out in places. Um, and it was a lot of hours of work, especially when you're starting something from scratch. Right. And so I learned those things from my first role. When I got to the New York City Department of Health, and that's all thanks to really Dr. Mary Bassett, who many are familiar with, who's now the commissioner um, here in New York State. You know, she saw the lack of diversity and, you know, she saw what I started. Um, and I think she wanted a younger physician on board or physician of color, you know, to kind of be in this assistant commissioner role. That role was already defined. I was already overseeing. Um, I was seeing overseeing Brooklyn. Um, but when she came back, so she was she actually left before I started. Then there was a transition in administration and she came back on as the commissioner. And okay. so when she came back on the commissioner, that's when um, I got promoted and she asked me to launch the Center for Health Equity at the New York City Department of Health. And eventually I became um, the, the deputy commissioner. And so in that role, taking all that I learned um, and also all that I learned from, again, engaging in Brooklyn with community leaders. I mean, it's a really fantastic opportunity in public health, especially in New York mm -hmm. City. Right. I mean, I had, you know, partnerships with healthcare institutions, community-based organizations, retail, media, like there were just so many different types of relationships across different sectors of whether it's transportation, law, education. It was just, it's just really neat to be able to engage right. with and learn from all these different types of, of folks and, and to learn the systems, how they interact and how they are the same. And especially as it relates to injustice, um, those structures are the same that show up in every single system. Um, and so, you know, starting the Center for Health Equity, 
what I learned from that space is just leadership. Um, and what does it mean to have, you know, courageous leadership and really stick to what you know and believe? I had the support in the environment of her leadership to allow me to do that. Um, and I learned from that. And so I, you know, I think by the time I was ready to leave the health department, the center was launched. We were funded. Um, it was a large center um, at that time. You know, we had neighborhood workers, 250 folks, but all, I've always had this opportunity to have really large centers. But I learned a lot about how to advocate and ask for resources. And, and I don't want to say demand resources, but really try to pitch like the bottom line of like, what are we really doing here? If we really want to commit to equity, we need to do this. Right. And so I think that kind of way of being and, and speaking directly uh, I learned that from the New York City Department of Health, which has helped me tremendously at the American Medical Association, which is a whole, you know, it's national. It's, it's, right. it's a very long-standing institution that has some very deep ways of being, you know, that are, are really hard to, harder definitely to push into challenge um, and to actually see change happen. That's really fascinating. Tell me this, because, you know, health equity now is a term that's being used by so many people, particularly in the context of the racial and other disparities that we've seen with COVID, you know, in the U.S. and globally. So I feel like health equity, now people are using that language more, but you were working on this before, right? So I'm actually really curious about the frame of health equity that you brought to New York City and how you see that language and terminology evolving now as we go into your AMA role, because to me, I, I'm still fascinated at the fact that you're really a pioneer here and you were working on this before, let's say, a lot of the hype around this language of health equity that's happened in the last couple of years. This is work that's been going on for some time. And so I'm really curious to hear how you've seen this topic evolve and how you approached it back then and how you see it now. Yeah, I mean, I, and I thank you for acknowledging the history because I think that's really important, you know, in terms of the historical context and who has been doing this work. You know, and it was in 1980s. Well, like we can go the whole way back actually to Du Bois, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, in his book um, *Philadelphia Negro*, where he really identified these these differences in health and and the social impacts, as well as racism. You know, and and exactly. we used the term race, but these systems that create it. So he has still gotten not he still hasn't gotten enough attention. You know, as as it relates to his role in doing that. And in using data and visualizing data to do that, mm -hmm. that's powerful. Um, and he's, he needs to get a lot, he deserves a lot of credit. But then in, you know, the mid 1980s, um, you have Margaret Heckler, the secretary of health under the, I think was the Reagan administration at that time, mm -hmm. who did a study. Um, and that study was done based on really advocacy of other kind of legislators who were around her that were black and said, you know, we need to see something different. You know, Louis Sullivan and, you have the work of um, our former Surgeon General, he wasn't Surgeon General at that time, uh, David Satcher and, and a few others who really organized, you know, to, to, to push for the government to do studies on what they knew were these differences in health. And then this report comes out around 1986 or 87, and then this Office of Minority Health on a federal level starts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was minority health at that time. That's what it was called. Right. And then they called it, you know, disparities. And then there was a whole movement. So when I started this work and when I got into it, there were, so I named some of the folks, but there was already, Kamara Jones was already in this space. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to remember everybody's name right now, but there, there are just several people that were already in this. Brian Smedley was in this space. Uh, I remember, you know, learning from him 
But my point is, is that there were others doing the work. And they started at that time, the movement from going from disparities to equity as language. Right. Um, so that folks are really clear that equity is just simply, I mean, disparities are just simply differences and differences in numbers. And that's, that is real and it happens and we see it. But that doesn't speak to the context of kind of, you know, again, the drivers and the differences in power um, and the differences in resources and, and how we need to, to address that actually to achieve equity, not just look at the numbers and the simple differences. So that movement started, I, I came into that time of that movement of that language. Yeah, let me ask you, is that, that movement, is it associated with the frame of social determinants of health or do you see it as slightly different? Yeah, I think, well, this, this, the nuance to me really is more public health and medicine, right? So I was in public health. We didn't say the social determinants of health in that way. Like we already, we already knew those like public health had already embraced because that's a public health frame to understand that there are social drivers and structural drivers that impact health. Now I'm not saying public health is not, is, is perfect. I'm not. Public health has its deep rooted isms as well that mm-hmm. influence all of these, but public health in that time, I didn't have to kind of justify or say things like that. But when I got to medicine and medicine is what's really slow, you know, really to talk about these, these, this broader narrative around health, Robert Wood Johnson and many folks had already put out documents that healthcare and, and, um, and, um, hospitals, you know, and, and clinical care is just a small part of what creates health and what shapes health, like less than 20%. Mm-hmm. And had other documents that showed, you know, where people lived and all these other things that people needed really shaped health much more. Medicine, because of how med students have been trained and, and really the impacts of the Flexner Report of 1910 that the AMA commissioned, really was focused on basic and clinical science. Okay. That, was, that was the outcome of the Flexner Report, that that is what should that's what medical education should be based on not on the social context or aspects of health or medicine right. just on the basic and clinical sciences and the research that was what's valued that's where the power is that's where the money is and so because there was so much voice in that space and so much power the narrative of health is really off in this country it's getting better but it's off so i would say just to answer your question you know the distinction for me was more the public health context and medicine medicine now is talking about social determinants of health, but it's becoming jargony, right? And right. folks don't even fully understand what that means. And so I think it's, it's a constant evolution and a constant push. And one of the reasons why we did the narrative guide in partnership with um, the Association of American Medical Colleges to help support people understanding that these words and these, these terms matter and the stories and the, the narratives that they tell matter as well. And we have to be very conscious of that as we practice medicine and do medicine and health. No, that's really fascinating. And it, it goes back and why I love hearing the background of our national leaders in this space is because to me, I'm hearing this go back to your time working on preventative or preventive medicine, right? Even in your training, right? So this ability that and gift that you have to probably for your clinical friends, right? Being able to do some of that translation between these two frames, I think it's, it's actually nicely set up there, how you laid that out. Cause I think that distinction gets lost maybe, um, sometimes, um, in terms of the nuance of these dynamics and how we move different stakeholders. So I want to use that to transition to your role at the AMA. So, you know, you're the inaugural chief health equity officer of the American medical association. 
And just even given its name, we know it's generally a body that's been driven by this kind of clinical medicine paradigm that you're, you've been describing that kind of also has needed some shifts in thinking, right? So tell me about, well, one for listeners, what is the AMA? Cause I think the AMA, sometimes people don't maybe know the scope of what it does. And then two, how have you approached given all this background, your role shifting the kind of paradigms around some of these areas that they're deeply entrenched the AMA when it comes to health equity? Yeah, um, thanks for that question. I do want to acknowledge, I'm going to get to that. I do want to say one thing as I was talking about before about, you know, public health and medicine and, you know, evolving language and learning these terms of social terms of health and shaping people understanding what shapes health. I want to be very clear that folks who are experiencing injustice across this country have a sense of what shapes health. Right. <laughs> I've been saying yeah. what they don't have for years. And they are not listened to typically from power structures, right? And so I just, I want to acknowledge that because it's not new information. It's, it's new to folks who oftentimes where these things have been made invisible, even to society as whole, right? or they don't want to pay attention to it. So I just want to acknowledge that. So back to then, you know, the AMA and coming on as the chief health equity officer. So the AMA has started uh, 1847. Um, we've actually... This is the 175th year this year, and it is a, an institution that was created to support um, and advocate on behalf of physicians. Really, um, initially, that's the core of, of what it is. Its mission is to promote the art and science of medicine and the betterment of um, public health. Um, it has waxed and waned in terms of, of membership. We're about at, I think, about a little over 270,000 in members. So it's the largest physician body. But it doesn't, you know, definitely doesn't represent in terms of membership um, all physicians. But because of the influence of AMA, it, it has, it, you know, its strongest arm. It considered one of the accelerators is advocacy mm -hmm. and the engagement that they do in the political environment, both on the um, and the legislative environment and the policy environment, both on the federal level and national and some more hyperlocal, the federal level, national, sorry, and the state level. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of power in there. So a lot of the work that AMA does is is related to advocacy of policies that are to support um, the betterment, again, of public health and, and the field of medicine overall. Okay. So the way it's organized is that, you know, there's membership and then there's a management team and I'm on the management team. There's about 1,100 staff who work on behalf of the members. Um, and our role is to execute on the policies, the AMA policies that are passed. They meet twice a year to, it's actually a really pretty democratic process mm -hmm. in terms of how they create policy and pass policy because there's representation across all states. And they have a house of delegates that operates very similarly to like, to a Congress um, with a whole entire board, you know, with presidents, speakers and all that. And so um, it's really fascinating to watch how policy is passed. Um, and so it's the, the, the membership that's really critical to how AMA is going to shift and how it has shifted into the equity space. Um, I would say at this point in time, you know, a lot of the young physicians and med students who are very much rooted in understanding equity and structures and their impacts and have a power analysis have been very much responsible for a lot of the policies that have been passed, especially around anti-racism. And it's because of those policies why we've been able to do the work in the way that we have been able to do. 
And then also recognizing kind of the leadership of, you know, um, Ron Davis, who was president in 2008, um, who, you know, along with folks issued the apology to the National Medical Association that was excluded. Um, the Black physicians were excluded for over 100 years from AMA and NMA was created and we apologized in 2008. There are, there are lots of leaders, you know, who came forward within AMA to really push an equity agenda. And then the, the House really made the decision in 2019 to say, we need to pause and we need to have a full organizational unit and we need to have a leader to really kind of drive this work and figure out our strategy as the American Medical Association. And so that's what I was brought on board to do. Okay. Um, and yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So look, you started this role in April 2019 before the pandemic. So given your background, I assume there are certain strategies and approaches maybe that you had in mind to start that process, given the mandate that you have. Yeah. Did the pandemic like accelerate what you already were working on or how did it accelerate and or change some of your strategies as, as, uh, as you're trying to get ramped up? Right. So, yeah. So it, it, it ramped it up a lot, uh, yeah. I think for many of us, right. And we were, we were still all trying to figure out how to slow down a little bit, but it's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. Um, and it ramped it up, you know, and I think for many of us in a meaningful way, in the sense of, you know, folks now are paying attention to equity and racial equity more explicitly. Um, they're putting funding in and I'm saying everybody is, and I'm not saying it's all consistent or is it sustainable. Um, however, it is way more than it was before. And so the opportunity was to take advantage of it and to, to push forward, honestly, as fast as we could to do some of this work. And so prior to COVID, right before that, I'd already started to, with the four people that were on my team at that time, we have 50 people on my team now, but the four people that were on my team then, we, we laid out five strategic approaches. I brought that kind of thought. I have, so that's what I think is like five approaches, like whatever. It's like, I got to have five approaches, you know, and it gives me space. Um, and so I did that at New York City Department of Health. The one that is definitely consistent, would always be consistent in doing this work is the internal organizational change work. Got it. And I think that's what folks really have us, I think, know me for the most, um, because I don't think you can really drive equity and have equitable outcomes as an institution if you don't start internally. You can do them both at the same, all at the same time, but you have to do the internal work. You have to change culture. And you have to change and push how people think in their mental models of how they show up in society as a whole, how they understand society and relationships and power mm -hmm. in their society and in their institutions. And then what do they, the skills to do something differently and to see differently. Um, because if that doesn't happen, you're not, it just, it only usually one person is going to be hired to do the work, right? They're held responsible for doing the work. That's a lot of pressure and it doesn't really create organizational change. And so, you know, that's been a very important strategy to all the work we've done. I've gotten that model and I learned a lot from the, um, once was the Center for Social Inclusion that was started by Maya Wiley. Also, they've merged and with Race Forward. So it's Race Forward has a lot of work and they work with the Government Alliance for Racial Equity. And they have frames and a model of normalizing, organizing, and operationalizing that I have used from that I just consistently use that. I'm actually also an advisor now at the CDC for their internal change efforts, not the external work, but the internal change efforts. And we're using the same model there um, at the CDC. And they now finished drafting 
their internal report, um, which is really excellent as well. So, you know, that's that's the consistency that I, I try to bring to this work. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, if folks don't want to do the internal work, I don't see the point of doing it. Right. So let me ask a question. So one theme that we've been talking about this season is the difference between health equity and, and, and DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. And at least one frame that's been used by a lot of people that we've been talking to this season is health equity is usually framed as about the people, about your patient population, your member population, about just differences in outcomes based on various equity domains. That's one thing. And DEI is usually framed as the internal work with team staff. So I think some listeners might hear you and, and hear this through the lens of you maybe saying or talking about DEI. And I want to ask, are you talking about DEI in an AMA context or is it something different that you're talking about? Yeah, I don't, I don't like the term DEI. Okay. <laughs> so tell, tell me more. It's again, it's a narrative, there's a narrative problem to it. Okay. And it's a, and it's an acronym. Um, and I'm not a fan of too many acronyms. Um, <laughs> they yeah, take away indeed. the power of words, you right. know, I get it. Sometimes they're, they're cute and you can use them and, and I get, you know, sometimes it's easier, but mm -hmm. I think again, this work, even take out health for that matter. And you just kind of use equity. Right. And the, the conditions for equity in terms of, you know, the outcome of it in terms of health equity is ensuring power, conditions, resources and opportunities to achieve optimal health. That's what I use as the outcome definition. Mm -hmm. And so in order to get there and the process of driving equity, right, um, Kamara Jones, this framework is one valuing all people equally. Right. Our data shows us that we don't value all people equally. And I tell that to folks all the time. If you have differences in numbers, you don't value people all equally, even as in institutions, greatest intentions. Right. And that's not just the outcome of the work. That's internal. So it can be the workforce things. It can be pay equity. It can be contracting and budgeting. Mm -hmm. um, it could be how like your comms is done. It could be, you know, all those systems within an institution have the opportunity to either drive equity or exacerbate inequity, right? Or make inequities worse. And so you have to look at all those systems, not just your workforce. Usually DEI is talking about workforce equity. Right. And this is why, to me, this is the problem with just that frame. Diversity is important, right? Representation of all identities, valuing identities across the spectrum, critical, important, and we know that's important. Inclusion, the sense of when you're these different identities that you belong is really critical, important. But we know that even if you're labeled as diverse and you, they may have things that create belonging, if you don't have power to make decisions right. or changes to drive money or whatever it is, that's not helpful, right? Or it's, it, it doesn't become helpful. That can actually be harmful. And so you need the equity context really speaks more to the redistribution of power. Right. And power, whether it's decision making or finances and resources. And so going back to Kamara Jones, you know, she talks about her framework. The three things are valuing people equally. The second thing is honoring and recognizing that there's a historical context of how you got there. And third, um, the part about the redistribution of resources, right, based on need. Right. And so you have to be that's what drives equity. And so that's why I don't like the, the thinking around DEI, because it almost segregates what happens inside of an institution from what happens outside of an institution. Yes, we're trying to get to health equity and, and driving that, but you got to achieve just equity in its 
it's in its purest sense per se right. within the institution and how people think about it and how your systems work and how the culture is working within the institution. That has to all feel equitable and be equitable at the same time. You have to have accountability, accountability systems and infrastructures in place, not just for workforce equity, but all types of equity within and all types of equity throughout all types of systems within your institution. That's to me where the work really falls short. I see. Typically. No, thanks for that. That's very insightful. Um, so now I like kind of look at the AMA context. There are a number of kind of seminal health equity policy documents. And I think now that you frame what the AMA does and how it works, I think it gives context for some of these documents, but there are several, but I, there are maybe a few that you could talk about in terms of your strategy. So I know there's some work that's been done around even definitions and having a framework around how to think about racism in medicine, um, things around healthcare innovation and health equity that you've put out. There are a number of them. So I, I was kind of keen to hear which ones you might want to emphasize or share or talk about as a more of a matter of strategy that the AMA has been putting out based on uh, these themes that, that you've mentioned. Sure. The other thing, and, and as I answer that question, also important, so I talked, so clearly we have the Advocacy Accelerator. We also do a lot in the space of innovation mm -hmm. um, and, you know, health, that's very big, you know, as you know, and in the space of healthcare and, um, you know, it, it meets so many different things, but we're, we do a lot in that. We do a lot around like supporting physician practices and sustainability also with health systems as well. Right. We do um, some stuff with um, chronic disease and health outcomes. And then we also do things with medical education and GME and education, graduate medical education as well. So okay. that is like the the full spectrum of the AMA work that employees and staff work on. And so in thinking about the so the first document I think that I you know is absolutely critical is the strategic plan um, itself. And in thinking about putting that together, I mentioned the strategic approaches. I had a sense of that of where we'd go, and that was just kind of learning the environment. But I also again understanding that medicine, from my perspective, was not at the same place as public health was in terms of just understanding the broader context of health and just equity in these terms overall. It just, it just wasn't as discussed in medicine and that people were really, I think, in many different places. I felt the strategic document in the plan needed to take time to kind of do some level setting. Okay. To, yeah, and, and we needed to explain and we needed to define terms. And, and, and that's why the document's long. It's like 80 pages long. Like right. a strategic plan typically should not be 80 pages long. But I don't feel we could have gone into strategy at the front line of equity without doing that parts of the, that part of it. And it generated a lot of attention, the, a lot of, I think for the most part, really great intention, attention, um, but you know, attention from many places. And then there was also kind of um, more negative feedback towards it and folks just not understanding why we were using certain terms and folks were really uncomfortable with some aspects of, of the document. What's good um, and what was really helpful is that the board, even within the AMA, there was there was absolute resistance to some aspects of the document. But the House of Delegates overall, what overwhelmingly um, were in support and have been in support of the plan. And the board of trustees also made it really clear to the House and delegates and membership that this is the direction that we were going. Okay. Um, and we were sticking to this direction. So that, you know, those things are helpful. You know, when you're doing this work and leading this work. I can't do it unless I have that, you know, and I can't do it well and I can't push far and fast unless I have that kind of support from the board, from the CEO, Jim Madera, 
And I'm not saying everything is perfect and 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 goes smoothly. I could never say that. Right. You know, there have been absolute challenges, you know, in doing this. And and some of these documents, the narrative guide, another strategic document to go more in depth. You know, there was a lot, there was a way more pushback with that one. And that one led to some safety issues, you know. And so, you know, this and and hard conversations. And then the JAMA incident happened, you know, about a year ago, a little over a year ago now, that also kind of just re-elevates, you know all the work that we still have to do, even in light of all the work we have done. And I think that's typical for any institution, truthfully. Right. And so given that backdrop that you got the strategic plan done, like where are you today? Like what are some of your key priorities today as you've kind of now been able to lay that foundation? Um, where where are you and your team focused in, in the near term now that you've got that foundation laid? Yeah, the, thank you. And so I think the, the important thing is for me, in doing this work that it's not reliant on my team mm-hmm. and that, you know, that all folks across our, man- our management team really understand their role and their leadership in equity. Um, and so what we've done over the last year, so last, I'm kind of almost forgetting where we are in the year, in December, every single business unit across the AMA, whether it was IT, communications, marketing, uh, our general counsel office, our general counsel rather, our office of general counsel, sorry, they all had to submit equity action plans. So, you know, they've all gone through certain levels of training and they still need more of that. That's an ongoing thing, Um, but training is never enough. So you have to have accountability and you have to have action and infrastructure to drive change. So they all have had to submit action plans of which they have metrics and, and, you know, we're going through those and, and, the, the opportunity is to hold people accountable. So that's where we are at in terms of making sure that the work um, is far reaching uh, because that will offer the sustainability of it and in, into the system of AMA. The second part, I would say our focus this year is working more directly with health systems. Okay. And so we've launched several initiatives. Well, we've launched one in January called the Peer Network that's in partnership with the Joint Commission and uh, bring in women's, uh, and that's working with eight hospital systems across the country, fairly large ones, to help support them embed within their quality and safety systems, racial justice practice, um, so that they can drive different outcomes. Um, and that's pretty intensive work. And it's actually, and, and folks, in order to participate in it, you have to commit that your executive teams and team members are participating in it and are on the calls and they're continually engaged. If you don't have that agreement and commitment, to the highest level of leadership with some touch points clearly through other points of the organization, you cannot participate in this program because to, again, to drive organizational change work, you have to have that commitment and you have to have that accountability and presence of those folks in doing this work. So we launched that earlier this year and we're going to be launching another campaign that's going to be more cross-sectoral uh, a little later this year in partnership with, uh, with IHI, the Institute of healthcare uh, improvement. And then we also are doing some partnerships with Race Forward, as well as the Racial Equity Institute to, to, to train higher level leaders, again, on racial equity and uh, racial justice. And then I, the other part of our work is around equity and innovation. And we have a advisory committee that helps support us develop uh, the Inful Health uh, Initiative, which okay. are um, principles for equitable innovation. You know, there was so much conversation and action and commitments post-George Floyd and during this time of COVID around equity. And 
I don't, you know, again, people not really understanding what that means. What, what does it really mean to have accountability show up? Right. So we wanted to put some principles forward, five of them. I don't, I won't be able to tell you off the top of my head, but right. exactly. But um, of what they should be doing in order to say they're doing equitable innovation. So they're not doing, so that, so it's not just lip service. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it has to do with centering the ideas, the people as well, um, who've been experiencing, you know, the greatest injustice, you know, so black and brown people are, who are very much excluded from the investment and innovation space, but also, you know, women, people with disabilities also, and, and those who identify as LGBTQ. And then it's not only just centering their voices and ideas, but making sure that as they build these solutions, that they are also part of the investment strategy, you know, and they are able to, to get equity and have a, a piece of what is going to create and build capital over time. Um, so how do folks better hold themselves accountable to that? So that's a large part of the work that we've been doing and then, and building collaboratives around that. And then I think the last one to really mention is, um, we have a, a strategy of fostering pathways for truth, reconciliation, and healing for AMA's past. And so really thinking through a lot of, you know, what does that mean and how, how does AMA reconcile and repair some of the harm that we have done? I see. No, thanks for that. That's actually a great kind of sense of the kind of layers of different issues that, that you and your team are working on, and particularly this concept of sustainability and embedding on operationalizing health equity across the org. So Aletha, I ask every guest this question, and I know that through your narrative, it comes out um, really clearly, I think in many ways, but why are you in on health equity? Why am I in on health equity? Well, I, you know, I, I think at this point, I, I speak more to the, the very personal of doing this work now. As a person of color, a woman, identify a black woman, you know, it's experienced, like it's our experience. I've experienced it. I, my family's experienced, right? It's very personal. And even beyond the very personal of the self-interest of it in one sense, I'm very aware, well aware of, and we've all heard quotes of this, you know, how, I, how well I do is important to how well others do and vice versa. And, you know, in doing this work, I've felt like now my job really is to convince people to care. And that's really hard, you know, that I, you know, to just care and to care better. David Satcher has been saying that a lot now too, you know, in his, in terms of a leadership. And he's like, we just need people who, who care. And there's a lot of folks who say they do, but the impact of their work and what they say and how they do it doesn't speak to that. It doesn't speak to the affirming humanity of, of everybody and all. And so I think we have to, you know, a lot of this work is trying to push people back, you know, through their own self-interests and their own self-awareness of how they are and who they are in society. And so, you know, I do this because I love my family. I love myself. I love my community. And I believe like wholeheartedly, we deserve to be able to experience freedom, joy, and love like everyone else. Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at In On Health. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.